This is Adam. Adam is an ordinary guy on an extraordinary mission. Adam has been challenged to face down his fears, overcome his doubts, and set aside his worries. Adam is on a mission from God. You see, Adam has been assigned the task of loving his neighbor. You may be asking, what does loving my neighbor look like? What does it require of me and for how long? This week, we find out about loving because we are loved in order to meet the need next door. Well, hey, I'm so excited that you're with us today. If you're worshiping with us in the chapel, on Facebook Live, or online some other way, or maybe you're worshiping with us at our West Campus, I want to welcome you. We are so glad that you're here. This is a great weekend to be checking things out here at Crossroads because we're beginning a brand new series today called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Now, for the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at arguably the most famous story in all the Bible that Jesus told, all right? Now, this story was a way to illustrate what Jesus meant when he told his followers to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't know probably where you live and uh, what your house looks like, what your living arrangements are, but none of us have a duplicate home. No, No two homes, no two neighborhood streets, blocks are all the same, right? I mean, we live in an era where we are defined by where we live. Certain neighborhoods are considered lower class, middle class, maybe upper class. You can uh, live in a rural setting or maybe in an urban setting or suburban setting. I mean, we all have different neighbors. We've all got different sizes of, of homes. Some of us are in an apartment complex, or maybe we're in a dorm on a dorm room floor on a college campus, or maybe we're at a retirement uh, village. We've all got different living arrangements. And, and where we live, it, it says something about us, although just about every place that each of us live in is different in some way. Now, our neighbors are certainly different, aren't they? I mean, you've probably got that guy in your neighborhood who's going to be paying off his Halloween decorations for the next three years. You know what I'm saying? And, and then there's that home. You don't like him because they have that perfectly manicured lawn and it looks like a golf course. And, you know, one blade of grass is never out of place. You know who I'm talking about? I mean, we've all got those people in our neighborhoods. We, we know who we're talking about when we say that. And there are a lot of differences, I think, that we could talk about in terms of our communities and our homes and our streets and blocks and, you know, you fill in the blank. But you see, in this series, we have to address a pervasive problem that, if we're not careful, is, is taking homes left and right. It is consuming our neighborhoods. It is taking over our city. Now, this is a problem that that really all of us have. The people who live beside us are struggling with this problem. And and what's challenging about this issue is that you can't necessarily see it at first. It's not easily detectable to the naked eye. You don't necessarily know that it's there, but over time it becomes obvious, especially the more we remove ourselves and we have a 30,000-foot perspective, it it becomes rather obvious that, that something isn't right. There's this problem. There's this issue. Something needs to be done about it. You see, behind every front door, there is a story being written. There's a story being lived out. Behind every front door that that you drive past, that's certainly true for each of us. And and for some, behind the front door is a place where loneliness and depression and isolation is, is just dominating right now. Behind some front doors is a room where a husband and a wife are shouting at each other and and a marriage is slowly becoming undone, unraveled. Behind some front doors, there's an empty room where a child used to sleep. It used to be his bedroom, and and for the mom and dad, it's just another reminder that 
child's no longer with them. Behind the front door is you fill in the blank. There's this problem of brokenness that is consuming every room. It is consuming every part of the places that we live. It's making its way known into our community and our city. And so in this series, we, we have to talk about this issue of brokenness because Jesus, he, he talked very clearly about it. You see, his, his whole thing was that there's a right way and a wrong way in dealing with this problem that really humanity has struggled with really since the beginning of time. And different points, every generation has uh, kind of addressed this problem in different ways. Sometimes we'll approach this problem through legislation, through bills, different laws, or maybe different initiatives. And and over the past 2,000 years, the church has responded by maybe isolating from culture because, you know, the world is the problem. There's so much darkness, so let's establish our own little community where everything can be perfect. And is that really what Jesus meant when he said to love your neighbor as yourself? And so this series is going to be about not only addressing this problem, but seeing how we can't really do this well until we first understand and realize how much God has loved us, this grace that he has given us. And and we are to meet needs, as we're going to see today, but that begins by realizing that, that God has met our biggest, greatest need through Jesus Christ. And so I want you to go ahead and open up to the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, go ahead and turn there now. If you don't own a Bible and you're with us, uh, there should be a Bible around you. Uh, Feel free to take that with you when you leave here today. Uh, Luke can be found towards the back of your Bibles, maybe the back fourth of your Bibles. It it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, okay? And and Luke serves as a biography on the life of Jesus. The book of Luke was written by a guy named, this is a live audience, isn't it? All right. Luke, you're very smart. You're, you're with it. All right, now Luke, you need to understand, was a, a former f- physician. He was a former doctor. And, and he, he wrote this biography on the life of Jesus by interviewing different eyewitnesses and friends of Christ who knew him, who walked with him. And, and understand this, that, that Luke became so convinced that Jesus really was God. He became so convinced that, that he was the one that, that people had been ultimately looking for that he ended up selling his medical practice and starting churches all across the Mediterranean world. He was so convinced that Jesus really was God that that he literally gave up his life so that other people would know that. And so we're going to be in chapter 10 today, and uh, let me just give you a little bit of context to this story. Okay, we're we're picking up at a time when Jesus was really popular. He he would go to different towns and villages. He couldn't get away from people. He was constantly being asked questions about uh, life, faith, sexuality, marriage, relationships, money. And and Jesus always made time for people like that. He was always facing questions. and, And the question that we're going to look at today comes from a really religious guy who looked like he had things together on the surface, but we're going to find out that his heart wasn't in the right place. Something was taking over that he didn't necessarily know, he wasn't aware of, all right? And yet when we hear that term, good Samaritan, we typically don't think twice about it. But for the first century Jew, that was an oxymoron, okay? You never put good and Samaritan next to each other. We're going to explore uh, the reason why a little bit later, but it was an oxymoron. It would be like what jumbo shrimp would be to us today, okay? Or healthy menu in White Castle. They just don't go together, right? Or Colts win. Those are just... Two words you you don't put together, right? All right? Lighten up, okay? (laughs) Verse 25, let's pick up, chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, we know that this guy was just trying to corner Jesus. I mean, for starters, this is really the wrong question to be asking. Why is that? There's nothing we can do to in, inherit eternal life. We can't earn a right relationship with God. There's nothing we can do to earn peace w- with God. All right, now, we don't like to hear this, and, and you might at first disagree with it when I say it, but you are not nearly as awesome as you think that you are, right? Right? I mean, there's no other person who is more consistently impressed with me than myself. And maybe occasionally my mom, all right? But that hasn't always been the case, all right? And if you think about it, though, the, the only reason why we would wonder about the afterlife and, and eternity is because we want something more than this world has to offer. Something is off and broken. One of the very first things that uh, we're told that Jesus said went like this, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is, is near. In other words, Jesus came to earth to destroy this barrier between humanity and our creator. Now, not just for eternity, not just forever, but really in this life as well. And so that means that salvation isn't just something that happens after we die, but salvation is also something, is a way that we live before we die. Following Jesus is really about welcoming and joining God and restoring what's been broken and lost throughout his creation. And so the implications of Jesus crashing his funeral and defeating death is that history is moving forward to a day when every wrong, every injustice, every ounce of pain and suffering will be made right under the reign of King Jesus. You see, the kingdom of God is both now, it's here, but it's, it's not yet. It it's, it's, hasn't arrived in its fullness. It's not complete let me time out here for just a second. I know that some of you listening right now, you have given up on God, you've rejected faith, you don't even believe that God exists. And and if I were to ask you why, you would say, well, I've experienced so much pain in my life. I've experienced so much suffering. I've observed a lot of grief. And and if God really is good, if God really is in control, I just can't reconcile those two together. I mean, shouldn't he have intervened when? Fill in the blank. The doctor came and said, I'm sorry, but you have cancer. Shouldn't he have intervened when that terrorist attacked innocent people? Shouldn't he have intervened when, see, racism just consuming our country? Where's God? And you know what? You've got a valid point. But let me ask you something. What if pain and wickedness, it's really... It's really evidence for God rather than against God. I mean, you don't need me to stand up here and tell you that opening up a machine gun on some innocent people, attending a concert is wicked and evil, right? Nobody had to tell you what is wrong when you look at darkness in that light. Nobody, nobody, informed, nobody had to train you to, to determine what is right and wrong. And so is it possible, is it possible that the determination of right and wrong comes from this place of you knowing that there is a standard of right and wrong? There is a way of what's right and true and, and what is off and, and not true? And if it can't come from people, because if you look throughout history, mankind has been able to justify some of the most horrific atrocities in terms of, well, that was right for me, that was right for us, and, and so who determines right from wrong? It, it has to come from someone greater, someone higher. And, and let me just ask this, don't you want it to be true? I mean, don't you want it to be true that, that a day is coming when there will no longer be a need for infertility doctors, there will no longer be a need for, for caskets, there will no longer be a need for divorce attorneys, there will no longer be a, a need for 
don't you want that to be true? And what if God is saying, it is, and you can actually join me in helping make this become reality now. Where would you even start with such a massive task? Check out what happens next, verse 26. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it, he answered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've answered correctly, well done, thumbs up, A plus, you did good. Now do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to give himself an out here. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who exactly are you talking about here, Jesus? What's happening right here? Well, this guy immediately responded to to Jesus' question with the Jews' version of the Bible back then. He actually quotes what's called the Shema. Now, every faithful committed Jew was required to repeat the Shema at least twice a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It was ingrained into them, okay? And so it's evident that this guy, he didn't have an issue with... Knowledge. He didn't have an issue with knowing what was right and true. And, and from an appearance standpoint, this guy had it together. He looked like he loved God. He lived a very moral and pure life. He had the sticker on, the bu- on his bumper sticker. He had the fish. He had magnets on his refrigerator at home with lots of different Bible verses, okay? And yet, something was off about him. Luke specifically said that, that he was just looking for a loophole. He wanted to justify himself. Why? Because loving people... In case you didn't know this, loving people can be messy, inconvenient, and uncomfortable. I know, just imagine if that were really true, okay? So Jesus responded in verse 30 by saying this. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, this was shocking. As he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law, the pastor, all right, replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, all right, go and do likewise. Go, go and do likewise. It's the one who had mercy on him. Now, by telling the story, Jesus was saying, look, anybody out there who has needs is your neighbor. Now, that is anybody in your life who, um, you know, you could perhaps work beside this person, or maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a literal neighbor for you. Anybody in your life, Jesus is saying, is, is your neighbor because that person has needs. But for the sake of this series, though, we don't want to uh, have such a broad target here because then we end up aiming for nothing. We want to narrow in and say, in this context for us here at Crossroads, we're going we're gonna to see this story through the lens of the people whom we live beside. Okay, people in our city, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, apartment complexes, condos, they they have needs. And and needs are are nothing but reminders that something is broken and off about this world that a lot of us call home. And and really needs remind us that we long for a day when King Jesus is going to come and reign. A need can be anything that, that someone lacks. It's anything as it shouldn't be in comparison to perfection. 
Now, it's not that your neighbors don't have needs. But my story goes like this. Oftentimes, it's that I just don't notice them, right? You see, Jesus has called his community to bring his kingdom into the community around us. Our motivation to meet these needs is knowing that that God has already met our needs. We love others because, because he loved us. Now, truthfully, this is pretty hard to measure. I mean, we're a very results-driven society. How do I know if I'm really loving my neighbor quite well? And oftentimes, we you know, view ourselves as loving better than maybe we really are. But one question we're going to ask in this series goes like this. If you were to move from your neighborhood, would your neighbors even notice? All right, if you were to move from your neighborhood, would your neighbors even notice? And, and by that, we don't mean like, yes, they would, because your dog is always barking until 3 a.m., and they are relieved that you left, you know? Or you're always parking your car in front of their house and leaving tracks. That's not what we mean. And so for the sake of this series, here's how we're defining what loving your neighbor is about. Loving your neighbor is about living in such a way that if you moved, if you moved, your neighbors would notice. All right, that, There would almost be this void, this vacancy in their life because you have loved them so well while you lived beside them. One of the homes that was right behind the house where we used to live uh, was just a complete eyesore, okay? Every time you would look out our back window, you would see uh, this person's backyard, and it looked like a junkyard. There were propane tanks everywhere and transmissions. And uh, the one time a year, the guy actually cut his grass. Three Cadillacs, I think, would just appear out of nowhere, all right? And evidently, there was an up-above-ground pool at one point, but it had been removed, and the deck around it had uh, started falling apart, and... uh, the more we observed this deck, we realized it was really like a zoo because we would see raccoons go back there and squirrels. And one time I actually saw a coyote run. There's no telling what was happening below that deck, okay? Now, we rarely saw these neighbors. In fact, I can count on one hand the amount of times I saw people outside the house. One time I was in the backyard and I looked over and the guy who lived there was outside. And I got to tell you, it was a little bit surprising. And and I kid you not... (laughs) He was, this is what he was wearing. He was wearing brown work boots, knee-high white socks, a white tank top that was way too small for him. It may have belonged to his, like, five-year-old son or something, okay? And he was wearing his underwear, okay? And it didn't catch me all that by surprise because it just reminded me of my uncle at family reunions, what he would always wear, and... And so it really wasn't that surprising. I went up to him, I extended my hand, and I said, hey, my name's Patrick, I live right over here. And he looked at me like I was interrupting him, and and I really was, because that meant that he had to extend his hand to to greet mine, and that meant for him to do that, he had to quit scratching his sweaty belly and actually shake my hand. I was like, all right, how are you, man? Good to see you. Now, one of the first things I told him when I met him that day was, hey, do you you need some help cleaning up your backyard? He didn't answer me, didn't respond. (laughs) And I would have said, I'd be willing to do something about it. Uh, I've got a great small group at my church that would love to come over and help clean up your backyard, all right? And and let me ask you this. Let me just throw this out there. But by me identifying a need that he had and by me offering to help, was that really loving him? The answer is no. And you know why? Because my suggestion to clean up his yard, it was really selfish. Because I knew that it was going to serve me. And so my offer to meet his need was really rooted in in selfishness, not sacrifice. And so if love can 
be a, a moving target. What, what does this really look like? What is Jesus talking about? I mean, love in our culture is kind of mysterious. What is love? Well, let's identify a couple observations and clarify what love is and what love is not according to what Jesus said. All right, the first thing that Jesus makes clear to us about love goes like this. Love is determined by how we live, not by what we know. Love is determined by how we live, not necessarily what we know. We tend to confuse the two sometimes. We equate love with knowledge. And and the evidence of loving people is not determined by what you know, the amount of information that you consume, but it's determined by what you do. A few years ago, uh, a couple Princeton psychologists did an experiment with some seminary students. They had them prepare this talk on the Good Samaritan, gave them about two weeks to study and prepare, and uh, they wanted their best talk that that they could give on on the Good Samaritan. Well, unbeknownst to the students, on the way to the classroom that day as they were giving that talk, the psychologist planted a man along their pathway who was, uh, looked homeless, he, he was raggedy, he was uh, kind of slumped over, and, and as the students walked by, he was kind of groaning in pain. And, and you would think that because they had been studying the Good Samaritan for two weeks that, that they would have stopped and done something. And yet, here's one of the conclusions they made with the study that was just shocking. They said on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried on his way to give the talk. So can you imagine the irony being played out? I mean, mean, these these were men and women who were so-called experts in Scripture. They they had been studying the the context and the original language of of the Good Samaritan and And yet it's like so much information and knowledge had immunized them and inoculated them to actually living out and applying what what Jesus was trying to get at. And Jesus is saying, look, it's, it's not about what you know, it's about how you live. All the information and knowledge in the world is great until the point it keeps you from meeting a need. You see, Jesus' point in this story was how much did the Levite and the priest, how much did their knowledge and intelligence matter to the guy who was on the side of the road on the brink of death? It didn't matter to him at all. And so what would change on your street? What would change on your block, in your apartment complex, on your dorm, maybe across your campus if, if you saw love as a verb? Here's the second point of clarification. Love that doesn't cost anything won't change anything. I think the guy who had been robbed and left for dead got a second chance at life, but understand it didn't come at a cheap price. The Samaritan had to rearrange his schedule. He, he gave up his seat on the donkey and let the guy sit there. He, he risked getting an infection or some type of illness by fixing his wounds. And, and then he paid his hospital bill in a day where there was no such thing as insurance. But Jesus is saying, look, it was costly. It required sacrifice, but, but that's what love's all about. Love is about responding to someone's need by sacrificing until restoration happens in their life. John Paul Jones is known as the father of the U.S. Navy. He used to tell his men this, those who will not risk cannot win. And you see, God determines a win for us, not necessarily by by what we give, but by what something costs us. This is a call for us to be inconvenienced and uncomfortable and to deny our personal uh, rights. This literally means that we see our neighborhood through the lens of who has needs, who is struggling, who is wrestling with life. How can you make someone's life better? Mike 
um, Morton attends Crossroads West, and uh, earlier this year he retired and had some extra time on his hands. One day he was in his house, he looked out his window, it was springtime, and his neighbor was kind of struggling to, to mow his yard. And, and so Mike thought, you know what, I can help him out. Went to the garage, got his push mower out, started helping his neighbor mow his lawn. After they were done, uh, Mike said, you know, uh, let me know if you have anything else. And the guy was very thankful and said, thank you so much for helping us. And, and that's really when Mike said, well, no, no problem. Let me know if you have any other needs. And, and to that, the guy said, well, actually, I have five other lots. And so Mike found himself mowing five other lots. That's how he was being consumed with his time. And over time, he started mowing homes left and right in his neighborhood. And he realized, I could do this a lot quicker if I actually had a riding lawnmower. And uh, so in the name of Jesus, he went to Lowe's and bought a riding lawnmower. And for the past six months or so, he has been mowing yards in his neighborhood. Why, why did Mike do that? He recognized the need. He was available and he's also coming from this place of realizing God, God has met my needs. How I can thank him is by meeting the needs of those around me. Here's the third point of clarification. All right, love elevates belonging over behaving. All right, love isn't about putting certain qualifiers on who should and, and shouldn't receive it. Jesus never said, you know, only love people who look just, just like you, believe just like you, and, and act just like you. This is about meeting people where they're at rather than where we think that they should be. Right, this was the central aspect of the story Jesus was telling. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. They were racist towards each other because they had different skin color and, and they believed differently from one another. Now, what's interesting about this story is that Luke notes just in the previous chapter, a couple days beforehand, Jesus happened to walk into town, a certain town, full of Samaritans with his closest friends, all right? Now, when the Samaritans recognized that they were just a bunch of Jewish guys, they immediately rejected them and kicked them out, mistreated them. And so Jesus' closest friends immediately started getting defensive. And here's what they said to Jesus. Hey, hey Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Do you want us to pull out our phones and just start ripping them on Facebook? We can you want us to give them a one-star rating on Yelp? You want us to write a blog post about how nobody should have anything to do with them and, and how they treated you and da 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 And you would think that Jesus would have been like, finally, somebody's got my back. Go for it. Absolutely. Thank you. Let them have it. <laughs> What's shocking is Luke said that didn't happen. In fact, we're told that Jesus rebuked his buddies and and then he made a Samaritan a hero of his story. What? <laughs> so often we think in terms of sides, right? Who's with us, who's against us, who's us, who's them. We tend to overlook the faults of those who are maybe on our side while emphasizing the good qualities of those on our side. And, and then when it comes to someone who disagrees with us, who believes differently, who looks differently, it's just the opposite, isn't it? I think that, you know what, I'm... I'm nailing it with this whole loving your neighbor thing until election season happens, all right? I don't know if this happens to you, but um, just suppose this happens, all right? For me, I'm driving down my street, I think I'm nailing it, and uh, all of a sudden I see a sign in someone's yard, the candidate that I plan to be voting against, or I'm behind someone at a stoplight and I don't like the bumper sticker that they have, and so my immediate reaction is to think to myself, I mean, how stupid are they? They need to get with it. They realize what could happen if so-and-so were put in office, and you know, I wonder, I wonder if they would even notice while they weren't looking if I just removed that sign from their yard. By show of hands, anybody ever 
thought that before? Anyone? Okay. Ten of us are actually being honest. The rest of you are lying. We see you, West. All right. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you if I have or have not done that before. All right. But here's the thing. We tend to see people who are with us or against us. And then when they're not with us, we look down on them. And what's the root of that? Well, I'll just speak for myself. It's pride. I think I'm more, I'm more right than them. They need to get with the ball. They need to see things the way that, that I see them. And, and you see, when beliefs become more important than love, we have forgotten what Jesus said was most important. You see, nobody stands between you and your neighbor more than you do. And as a church in the 21st century, we must be careful because over the previous 20 centuries, the church hasn't always gotten this right, okay? We've drifted from what Jesus said was right and true. Why? Because we have been confused about who the enemy really is. We've confused holy living for isolation. We've confused, uh, we've confused obedience for anger towards someone of a different sexual preference. We have confused love for trying to fix people. And let me make this very clear. Our culture is not the enemy. Your neighbor is not the enemy. Rather, they are the victim of the enemy. And you know what victims need? Victims don't need to be yelled at. Victims don't need to be looked down upon. Victims need to be rescued. They need to be helped. And here at Crossroads, we believe this. We believe that since Jesus is for everyone, the biggest threat we face is putting up an obstacle for anyone. We believe that since Jesus is for everyone, the biggest threat we face is making Jesus an obstacle for anyone. The way of Jesus is not about using love for, for some hidden agenda or for some other reason. Candace Chapman of our church, she's a member here, she told me in an email this past week, she goes, I love my neighbors, not to convert them, I love my neighbors because I'm converted. I think that's a great way to say what Jesus is saying here. And so if you move from your neighborhood, would your neighbors even notice? Would they care? What's it like to live on the other side of you? You know what, thank God, thank God Jesus dined with sinners because if he didn't, I'd still be lost. And so would you. Here's another way to clarify how we're to treat people. Love prioritizes interruptions over busyness. One of the biggest reasons we have such a difficult time, I think, meeting people's needs is because we are so focused on our schedule. We have so many things to do. Meanwhile, we are overlooking what may be more important, what is more pressing for, for someone else. Now, if you look throughout the four biographies on the life of Jesus found in the Bible, what's interesting is that some of his most significant moments happened when somebody interrupted Jesus, he, he was teaching, he was performing another miracle and someone would ask for his attention, ask him a question and he'd be pulled away from what he was doing. Jesus saw interruptions as an opportunity. And if Jesus didn't see interruptions as an opportunity, there would have been a bride and groom who would have been disgraced in their community because at the reception, the wine ran out and that was a shameful thing in the first century. If, if Jesus didn't see interruptions as an opportunity, then there would have been a woman who was caught in the act of adultery she would have been stoned to death by some of the pastors of her day, the religious leaders. But instead, Jesus was interrupted and said, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus saw interruptions as opportunities. Are, are we doing the same? Are we doing the same? What's the risk that we run if we walk on the other side of the road when we see a need? Here's the last point of clarification I want us to take away, all right? Love, it helps others see who they really are. 
Love helps others see who they really are. You see, a life that is defined by mistakes, brokenness, regrets, guilt, shame, and fear is a life of somebody who somewhere along the way has misplaced their identity. You see, the good Samaritan did more for the victim than just meet his physical needs. I mean, it's bad enough that that the guy was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he was robbed, but it's even worse the fact that there were others who, who saw what had happened to him and they went on. I mean, it's another to be lying in a pool of your own blood, naked, on the verge of death, and the only thing standing between you and living another day is somebody simply recognizing that you need something, and yet they walk away basically saying, you know what, you're just not worth it. What went through his mind when he realized that he wasn't valuable enough to be saved as he was ignored. I mean, you start to think of yourself as less than you really are when people see your circumstances, they acknowledge, they acknowledge your need and they don't bother to do anything about it. And they don't consider you valuable enough to, to, risk, to risk meeting that need. And the Bible doesn't say this, but I imagine the longer the guy was on the side of the road that day and the more he was stepped over and ignored, I wonder if... As that happened, the more the lies from his past just began to become more and more true for him. Things like stupid, mistake, worthless, piece of trash. See, the good Samaritan, he did much more than just help him in a time of need. He helped this guy reclaim his identity. He gave him back his dignity, and he honored him. And you see, the truth is this. You don't know the battles that your neighbors are fighting right now. You don't know what's at stake. It's tough for us to see what's, what's behind that front door. This past Wednesday night, I was in an elders meeting, and I was surprised to get a text from my wife, Savannah, that said, Vera's room just caught on fire. We're okay. The fire department is on its way. I was shocked. I immediately, well, uh, quickly left the meeting, and uh, everything was fine. Ended up not being uh, a huge deal, and there wasn't that much damage. And I'll end up taking back a chandelier that caught on fire in her room. And you see, about 15 minutes before she texted, Savannah was out running some errands. Our alarm company called her and said that there was a smoke alarm going off on the second floor of our house. And so Savannah dropped what she was doing. She sped home, and, and she didn't know what she was going to see when she pulled onto our street. She expected for things to be up in flames. And again, she just didn't know what to expect. Well, as she pulled into our driveway, having just received this call, she was relieved to see that Everything looked fine. I mean, everything was normal on the outside. There was no smoke coming out windows. There was no evidence of fire. Things looked just like the way that she had left them just a few minutes before. And so Savannah got out of her car, and, and she walked up to her front door. And, and when she opened up the front door, though, she was hit with this wall of smoke. And she walked upstairs and realized what had happened. And our house almost burnt down. Here's why I tell you that. What Savannah saw on the outside of our house, it wasn't representative of what was actually taking place inside. And she just waited in the driveway and be like, okay, great, everything's fine. Destruction, chaos. And there's just no telling what would have happened. I mean, we may not have a house to this day. And what if? What if that describes that family that lives across the street from you? They wave, they give a nice smile, everything looks great. They, 
they got a pretty cool car, they have things together, but behind that front door, there's a fire brewing, there's smoke starting to pile up. Could that be the case for the guy who lives to your left and right? You don't see him all that much. Is it possible? That, that defines that elderly couple who appears to be wealthy. They live at the front of your neighborhood and they got things together. And yet if you were to go behind that front door, they're on the verge of destruction. They're on the verge of, of complete brokenness and pain. Now here's why this matters for us as a church is because Jesus can handle what's behind that front door. Jesus is not afraid of of what's behind that. He, he can handle the smoke, he, he can put out the fire, but God always uses people to reach people and he's counting on his followers, his community, us, <laughs> to say, all right, I'll, I'll do something about it. You know, it's pretty hard to love somebody if you don't know their name. And so here, here's the next step that we're gonna be challenged with together over the next two weeks, okay? As you leave here, uh, out in the atrium, that there's a card. It's blue and white. On the white side, what I want you to do is I want you to begin thinking about who, who lives around you. That little house at the very center of the grid, that represents where you live. That represents your house, your apartment, your dorm room, your uh, living facility, whatever that may be. That, that represents where you live. Who are the people around you? You don't know their names? Great, you've got two weeks to get to know their names. Come up with a creative way to get to know their names. I'm not asking you to run a mile, I'm not asking you to run a marathon, I'm just saying get to know their names. Because when you start to call somebody by their name, that's when love can take root in their life. And do you know how we know that God loves us? It's because the Bible tells us that he knows our name. It's hard to love somebody if you don't know their name. And so we're gonna do this together as a church, all right? Over the next two weeks, you're gonna hear us talk a lot about just get to know your neighbor's names, all right? Fill in their names as you discover them. You can pick up one of these cards as you leave here today, all right? We're gonna pick back up with this story next week as we keep going in this series, Won't You Be My Neighbor, all right? Don't forget to pick up one of these cards. Uh, before we do that, uh, let me pray for us, all right? God, I'm thankful that you're gonna call us to do something that you haven't already done for us. You don't call us to do something that you haven't already shown us what it looks like to do that. And, and the truth is, we're all that messy individual who's broken, who's lost, who's just bondage to darkness and brokenness. And, and if we're all honest with ourselves that deep down, we're, we're wanting something more, we're wanting something greater. And yet that's evidence and even clues that we were made for something bigger. And, and that was to be a part of this kingdom. And what's really cool is God, in spite of us, you allow us to be a part of what you're doing in this lost and broken world, to reclaim what's lost, to restore what's broken. And that starts with where we live, that begins in our home. Would you help us to do that? Thank you that you know our name. It's in the name of Christ that we pray, amen.